Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 139, and today's guest is Max Versace, co-founder and CEO of Nerala. Very few people have the same level of knowledge about artificial intelligence than Max. He holds two PhDs, several patents, and co-founded Boston University's Neuromorphics Lab. Yes, AI is a major buzzword heard across multiple companies these days, but Nerala is actually building AI, not just using it. The company's technology has been deployed on 30 million devices globally, and its brain builder platform has multiple use cases for drones, robotics, smart devices, and more. And if you were wondering about his last name, yes, Max is part of the same Versace family tree, except his idea of modeling is very different. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a discussion around the debate on whether AI is dangerous for our future, aka the Terminator scenario, Max's early life in Italy, how he got into AI from a young age and his experience at BU, all the history and details on Nerala and their technology, advice for founders on the patent process, the biggest challenges of commercializing research and building a company out of it, advice for founders who are ahead of the market and trying to raise capital, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that every Monday morning, we send out two weekly digest emails? There's one for Boston and one for New York. It is a weekly email where you can stay connected to all the must-know information from each local tech scene. It includes information on companies, jobs, events, deals, and more. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email and look for the weekly tech buzz to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Max. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're going to talk a lot about Nerala, artificial intelligence. There's so much about your background that I'm excited to chat with you about. But I thought we'd start off just by with uh, an interesting question about, um, you know, the debate around AI. So you'll see uh, public figures like Elon Musk that are, you know, sending out these warning signs that AI is dangerous and we need to be careful. Uh, and there was these, even, I think it was last month, he held a, a debate in, in Shanghai with Jack Ma, the you know, founder of Alibaba, and they both kind of had their own little debate about AI and traveling yep. to Mars and stuff. But anyways, so, so what, like, how would you, um, I'm sure you've seen what he said, he said publicly. So what are your thoughts as it relates to kind of these warning signals that sometimes people are projecting and creating this fear that there's going to be a real life Terminator scenario? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll answer you with a with a question. When you, when you have a problem in your in your tooth, who do you go to? I go to the dentist. Yeah, and uh, you know if you have a problem in your knee, maybe the, the orthopedics. Uh, and so if you have a problem in AI, you don't go neither to Elon Musk or to you know Jack Ma of Alibaba. So it's it's uh, it's another way to tell you that uh, none of the guys who are talking about AI Armageddon have any clue whatsoever, without using bad words, of what they are talking about. So what they really want is uh, attention from the crowd. But uh, to, to a person which has a, a, any, a shred, a shred of intelligence, you know, is going to look at those guys and, and have a laugh. Uh, I was actually recently giving a talk in Italy around the, the theme which I, I called AI, AI apocalypse, right? So apocalypse with the AI in front. And, and so I went through a brief history of apocalypses, right? So... Uh, in, in a thousand after Christ, obviously we all we all died, we all perished. There was a, the so-called mille non più mille in Italian, which was a, the the prophecy from Nostradamus that the, a thousand years after the birth of Christ, we were all doomed. 
that didn't happen as far as i remember um then you know the the next armageddon was uh, uh, i think we we talked about 1969 and i don't know if you look at the show madman mm-hmm. uh you yeah, know I watched it so in one episode, which was fantastic, in 1969, they introduced the first uh, computer. And one of the guy there, the, the, the kind of the expressive genius, he started mm-hmm. to flip out. And, the, you know, the last scene I see him was in a, in a, in a straitjacket being carried out. He chopped off his ear like a Van Gogh, thinking, oh, oh hell, the computer is going to take everybody's job. Right. Of yeah. course, I'm watching a computer while talking to you. That didn't happen, right? So we all have jobs with computers. Then the next... Uh, the next Armageddon, which one was it? Um, uh, I remember talking about, oh, two, uh, Y2K. You know, you remember oh, yeah, 2000? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All remember. computers, wow. they all blew up, right? We, up, we were, yeah, yeah and the Astro. humankind, they sent into caves back, right? Then the, my favorite is 2012, because my birthday was 21st December 2012, and my, my sister-in-law uh, thought I was the Antichrist, right? So my my birthday was exactly the, the end of the Maya calendar. The movie came out. I was doing AI with NASA, DARPA. So she, you know, this guy's <laughs> obviously the Antichrist. Uh, and then and then there is Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to me, he he inserted perfectly into this lineage of buffons uh, that uh, that are basically you know screaming, um, you know, the uh, the world is ending. Uh, to me, uh, AI is another great tool that we should absolutely leverage to solve the huge problems we have. And this paradoxically, that the, the guy like Elon Musk who wants to go to Mars, how is he going to go to Mars without AI? Right. Like, yeah. It has to be colonized by robots first with AI. And that's actually how we started working with NASA. Well, ex- that's ex- I was going to talk to you about that. Maybe now's a good time. And the AI was helping NASA with that exploratory technology. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the most stupid thing you can do is to explore uh, and completely colonize a remote and dangerous planet with humans, right? The humans should go afterwards uh, and, and should be heavily assisted by robots. Now, if robots are on Mars, they're not going to be able to communicate with Earth and, uh, you know, have a 20, 20, second, 20 minutes delay in sort of having the brain on Earth and uh, the robot on Mars. They have to have the brain inside, which means AI. Leaving aside all the self-driving car things that he is doing, obviously heavily with AI. So there is a lot of hypocrisy there, but mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's forget about Musk for a second and, uh, and, and talk about you know, space colonization. Obviously, NASA was interested in leveraging bio-inspired uh, AI, which is essentially reproducing aspect of uh, human and animal competencies inside robots because the intelligence located into robots was the only way, only way to solve uh, you know, these remote, uh, you know, use cases. And um, the, the problem with Mars is that you have very uh, little compute power available and uh, no ability to ping the cloud and no GPS. So we had to come up with a, with a, a very compact model that uh, exemplifies how the brain works inside a, a, a compute power that is really tiny and uh, is able to learn also directly on the device. So everything was done self-contained. That's how the company basically started in, in terms of its technology. And, uh, yeah. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> yeah. We start from there. Yeah. It, so the, the history of AI, so it, it's, you know, it's very much a buzzword now, right? I, I mean, I go to an event, I was at an event last week and someone came up to me pitching what they're doing and, uh, you know, we're, you know, uh, helping companies hire better through uh, job recruitment AI. And I'm like, well, and it yeah. basically was, questions of you know do you have experience it was like a decision tree where i'm just like stop it with the ai right but the history of ai goes back to what the is it the 50s or like i mean it it, it's a technology that's been building for several uh decades now 
it, it was, it was. So uh, in, in Italian, we say uh, AI is like parsley, right? So you put parsley a little bit in every every dish. And <laughs> so AI is sprinkled everywhere to, to the point in which it's meaningless, right? right. Uh, and so let me give you some background. When I started in, in AI, I was uh, back in a, at the you know end of my high school in, in Italy many, many years ago. There was no formal program in AI. Nobody really cared uh, about AI in general. There was a, a winter of AI that had been going on you know, thanks to some disillusion uh, about some earlier AI claims that didn't pan out. And I, my, my uh, focus was uh, bio-inspired AI or, or neural networks. Today, those neural networks have been called deep learning. So uh, I remember when we, we were pitching those, those ideas, uh, we were basically being kicked out and say, well, that's stupid. Nobody wants that. Don't say that. Or sometimes they say, yeah, I like you, but um, change the word neural network, take it out of the proposal. So uh, we went from a phase where nobody really cared about AI. Uh, and, and the same people now are marketing themselves as AI people, right? And uh, so and you can have it both ways, right? You, can, you cannot have um, you know, a, a lot of interest in the field without having the, you know, this wave of, uh, you know, uh, frauds that are basically coming to the AI field saying they do AI, you know, either the field is unknown and nobody talks about it and you don't have those guys, they're doing something else, maybe genomics, or the field is very known and you have a lot of, uh, you know, noise, I would say, borderline fraud as, as uh, you know, saying they, they do AI with decision trees. Right. Um, so I think it's, you know, I came to turn with the fact that uh, today the challenge is more of a, educating people to the, the difference between, uh, you know, uh, uh, fairy tale and, and real AI. And, uh, you know, that's the, the flip side of the coin. But as you say, AI goes back to many, many decades. I mean, the, one of the first uh, diagram of a neural network was done by, you know, Freud in 1890, something like that. Wow. And obviously it was not put into mathematical terms that started to, to happen in the 40s and with the introduction of a calculator, you know, it became increasingly useful and clear how to design uh, neural network, you know, based on the, you know, the, the, the ideas of automata and uh, uh, as computer were developed almost automatically, even von Neumann itself, you know, was a, a studio of the brain. But really there were two camps in AI per se. Uh, one, it was a more traditional AI, like you mentioned, decision trees. And that was championed, if you will, by the MIT thinking, right? So AI can be dissected the same way you know, we dissect language and I can create ontologies and I can create, you know, sort of um, general schemes and decision trees where, you know, by my sheer ability to decompose a problem, I can create a structure where if something is round, red, uh, and I can eat it and it smells, uh, you know, this much, then it's an apple. So that was the traditional AI champion by MIT that has failed. Uh, I mean, it, it has took us uh, to a certain level uh, where the, you know, th th there are useful applications done with decision trees and a lot of things can be powered by decision trees. But really what took uh, AI to the next step was neural networks, which kind of linger into a limbo until uh, uh, compute power and data became available at the scale in which the, these neural networks were able to be trained the right way and that they kind of surpassed any other AI technique uh, that was developed before. Got it. Yeah, that's where we are today. Okay. Um, now, so you already mentioned, you know, high school in Italy. So uh, it's hard to ignore your last name, Versace, right? So, yes. so you're part of that that actual family, right? The fashion icon name, like that's actually your 
cousins or yeah so we are uh, we are cousins um you know i i did uh, the other kind of modeling as i said i did the neural modeling right. whereas they, they did uh, you know real modeling yeah. um but you know we are uh, we are definitely it's a small family uh which originated in calabria which is south italy and uh, my parents move uh north to trieste close to venice and uh, his uh, gianni versace's family with santo and donatella they moved to milan you know we are in touch every now and then uh, and, and chat but you know different different uh, modeling as i said now how did you get into more you know ai at a very early age yeah so i was a very you know curious guy um and uh, in high school i i wanted to basically pick a, a scientific discipline to study. And, uh, you know, I was tossing around the uh, two options, physics and, uh, and psychology, and say, well, those are really different, right? So I was interested in, uh, as you can, you know, as you are a teenager, you want to know the, the theory of everything, right? And um, I say, well, I can study physics, and then would basically, you know, be one path. Uh, but then I thought, well, really, how do you understand the world is through your brain, right? So even physicists, even Einstein has a brain. And he's using that brain to understand the world. So I thought maybe uh, psychology, neuroscience in general is the main way, because if you understand your brain, then you understand what gives rise to physical reality or inter- or interpretation of physical reality. And so I went into psychology, you know, wanting to study the brain in general. And, uh, you know, many, many years later, uh, it's actually funny how the, the two disciplines have uh, diverged and are kind of going back going together in a sense in a meeting point if you if you look at the diagram that uh, you know the leading the cutting edge physical theory are proposing us uh, you know quantum gravity for instance where you know you can see you know these nodes that represent space connected by links and the space and time are basically a structure emerging from this interaction between nodes and links mm-hmm. and then you look at the neural network which is basically neuron connected by synapses and they're building our physical and spatial you know, spatial temporal re- reality in a sense i think there there is a convergence and and uh, if if you think uh, if you're thinking back why would that be well, why wouldn't that be right so the brain is designed to understand our physical reality and so maybe there is a, a so-called isomorphism or uh, iso which means same and morphism which means form there is a, a communion of forms between the brain and our physical reality so that's sort of a an interesting uh, you know thought and uh, I, I don't have much time to think about these things these days but uh, whenever i travel i read and uh, those are my my latest insights now what, what brought you to the u.s and then ultimately you you started the neuromorphics lab at boston university so how did all that come together yeah so that, that was um, almost accidental so um i i started the, the phd in 2001 and uh, in 2007 I was looking for jobs, uh, you know, I was a postdoc and, you know, potentially go out to an industry job in California when DARPA came in and uh, uh, DARPA was designing, um, you know, novel chips architecture uh, based on uh, brain inspired uh, technology. And uh, they kind of recruited me and they gave me enough money to start a lab uh, to myself, Heather and Anatoly, which they then also became the, the co-founder of Norella. But um, basically, they gave us this uh, incredible opportunity to you know, start a lab, which would then scale to about 25 people, to uh, design algorithms that will go into these novel chips. And uh, this brain-inspired chip back in 2008 were just a fantasy. And uh, today, if you are using one of the top three brand of s- smartphones, you are leveraging a neuromorphic chip. Uh, so as opposed to the CPU, 
and the GPU, so the central processing units and the graphic processing unit. Like one does the calculation, you know, that runs traditional pro programs, the other one does graphic rendering. Today, there is also an MPU or a neural processing unit, right? So if you have a, a top brand of a cell phone latest generation, you have an MPU on your phone. Hmm. That came as, a, as an original concept from this, from this sort of projects, right? So DARPA has done it again, right? You know, they, they, they spearheaded the invention of internet, GPS, and so forth. And now those MPUs are becoming kind of a mainstream in consumer products. Fascinating. And so, and so we stayed at the university for a while until we decided to, to quit. But that was DARPA that kept us there. Got it. And so what eventually brought you to the point where uh, you felt you had something that could be commercialized and, you know, starting the company that you co-founded, Nerala? Well, more than commercialized at that point, there was a pool from uh, governmental agencies, which were kind of a spearheading commercial uh, engagement, uh, basically saying there is enough interest for this technology to be used into real world applications. So we got some funding from NASA and the U.S. Air Force at the beginning, and then some leading to leading after that, some uh, uh, companies started to engage us, like the more uh, front-running companies that were, you know, starting to uh, put their nose under the tent of AI, right? Um, and so we understood that there was not a research anymore that could have a, a, an applied uh, nature. And so, as a, as scientists, we thought, you know, we have done science for a while. We want to. We, we want to see what, what's, what's happening on the other side of the pond. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you run a business? How do you scale it up and make a big, build a company out of your paper napkin equations? And so we are still doing that. It's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> That's the answer. Okay. So let's, well, let's talk about Norella. So um, you know, how did you get the company started? And like, like, what do you guys do? Yeah, so we got it started uh, back actually in 2006. Uh, uh, we, we, came across some uh, problems in uh, running our research. Uh, our algorithms were really slow. And so we came up with a patent to make them run on GPUs, uh, on graphic processing units. So we started the company almost to, you know, just as a joke to contain this patent. And uh, we kept it aside as a, you know, as a sort of a side activity. And, uh, you know, part of the problem in uh, building an AI company and uh, in, that does robotics and stuff is that you have to get the timing right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we kind of waited until the, you know, the, the little seed became a, you know, a bush. Uh, I would, let's put it this way. So it was not the right time for us to leave. Uh, mm -hmm. It was still very early. And now it is early, but it's not that early anymore, right? So still, we are still in the early part, but back then it was very, very early. Mm -hmm. And so we kept it there for a while. And then in 2013 was um, when we had enough money from NASA, DARPA, and then we entered the, uh, an accelerator called Techstars uh, mm -hmm. here in Boston. So we we started to hire people, and we went from uh, you know three people to about a dozen. Right. And was that when uh, Reed and and Katie Ray were running the uh, Techstars accelerator? That's right. So uh, Katie looked at us in the eyes and said, "You guys are you know just three scientists. Do you want to become? Do you want to stay scientist or do you want to become entrepreneur?" And so we looked at each other and said, "Yeah, let's do this." So we basically tapered down the, the lab and uh, shut it down and eventually yeah. you know, had a few, a few students that still needed to graduate and then uh, turned entrepreneurs. Now, but you know, when you were applying the tech stars and had to you know, interview or you know, pitch Katie and, and read, like, it makes sense that Katie's at the engine now making really hard investments. So did, she, did they automatically understand like, wow, this is 
forward, futuristic, but not too far off that there is a company to be built? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, they, Cadian Reed are extraordinary. In, in, they, they have a good blend of um, you know, intelligence and uh, intuition. Yeah. And uh, I believe that, uh, you know, when you are an investor, just reading the, the data is, it doesn't make you a very good investor because then you're either too late or wrong. Yeah. Uh, and so part of the, the thing from them is, is gut feeling, right? Is the, is the industry going to mature and are these the right guy to do it? And so I think that's, that's mostly like a bet on the team on their side. And then uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll make enough money to, or raise enough money to stay around when the, the industry finally booms and mature, which is happening now. Yeah. Well, let's talk about now. So the technology that you're building, the use cases, if there's examples of that, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So since our first start as a geeks, hopeless geeks, uh, today we have uh, deployed our AI in about 45 million devices. Wow. So, yeah. So that's uh, amazing when we look back uh, and, uh, you know, we do that. We did that through many mistakes. You know, that's how you learn. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Einstein say, if you don't, if you, if you're not making a mistake, it means you're not pushing. Right now, right, and so we did ma- make many mistakes, um, but eventually we put our AI into application ranging from cameras, uh, looking at uh, you know worker behavior in factories, to uh, smartphones for digital photography, so consumer kind of uh, application, to consumer drones, for instance, enabling the drone to be piloted by AI, to enterprise drones enabling these drones to inspect uh, automatically uh, infrastructures like uh, wind turbines, uh, um, electrical you know, power distribution grid and so forth, to robots deployed in grocery stores looking for spills and other items that might have fallen. So reducing the, the workload from human workers and working collaboratively with the human to make a better experience for the customer, to industrial machines where despite what Trump is trying to do to bring back uh, jobs to U.S., nobody wants those jobs, right? So the, the manufacturing is, is finding out that uh, nobody wants to work in the industry. It's not sexy. And so they, they want to uh, put more and more AI inside machines and factories to uh, make the work better, you know, increase the quality of, the, of remaining jobs, but also sometimes take jobs that nobody, nobody wants to do, which is, say, quality control and so forth. So those are the, the ranges of application. Neural is focusing more and more as time goes on into the concept of uh, automatic inspection, right? So where you have a camera looking at something and you want to build a custom brain, we call it, we call it the brain, just to, not to call it AI, mm-hmm. uh, because brain is actually more similar to what we do than decision trees, if you will. Right. Uh, so and those, those brains are custom, meaning that there is no general algorithm out there you need to train it on very specific data say you know you are inside a machine that builds uh, tea packets and so you have a very specific set of things that you have to look for and so we enable customers to build those brains and put it inside uh, you know those very tough use cases because i think what's important to know for our for for our um, listeners is uh there's lots of ai companies are claimed to be yet they may be incorporating ai of some like component or, but you guys are actually building AI. Like you said, you're building a brain. That's yes. True AI. So there's a big distinction there, right? 
Yeah, so I mean, AI can, is a is a as we go back to the origin discussion, you know, came into many different flavors, right? And but I to simplify for the listener, I put it in two buckets. Uh, one is uh, the AI where the intelligence of the researcher creates the decisions to be taken by the the machine, and so these are the the classical AI system, the decision trees that you mentioned, for instance. And that approach works up to the point, but you know, championed by MIT, MIT style, but that's, it has failed with respect to the, the challenges that uh, AI now faces, right? You cannot use those algorithms to drive a car or, 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 to, or even to perceive reliably an apple versus a pear, right? So that those, they don't work. And, so, and then the other camp is the brain-inspired AI. And, uh, you know, from the distance, it might look like a very homogeneous bucket, but when then when you open it up, there is a huge variety of different approaches as there are, I don't know, people on earth on how to do that, right? And so there are some dominant approaches, some more fringe approaches, some approaches that have been forgotten in the literature and, and so forth. So that's where we play. We, we only build AI systems that are inspired by the brain. Got it. And what's the size of Norala now? And like, what are your growth plans ahead? Uh, we are about 40 people. Um, we'd be probably raising funding by the end of this year or beginning of next mm-hmm. and expanding, uh, you know, nationally, but also to tell you the truth internationally, uh, at least if the current political climate stays like that, it's very hard for us to, you know, I was, I was just in Europe where, you know, I was talking with a fellow Italian who says, you know, I had a job offer in North Carolina, uh, was twice the money in Berlin, but I, di- I didn't feel like uh, welcome there. Mm-hmm. And so this is, a, you know, it's kind of a problem and a trend. And uh, there are very few AI scientists worldwide and, you know, everybody's trying to hire them. So it's very hard in the U.S. to scale up. Um, so looking internationally would be a key part of our growth. Okay. The, um, the one thing that, you know, I picked up is, you know, Boston University is where you built this lab. So yeah. like, you would think it would have been MIT or something, right? So, so, so why was it BU and, and is BU still, you know, yep. in this level of research that's, uh, you know, in the yep. AI capacity? Well, the story is actually pretty fascinating. So uh, the professors that built my department at BU were actually, before that, were, were at MIT. Hmm. And uh, as I mentioned, MIT was championing a different kind of AI, which was not the neural network or brain-inspired base. And so basically they were kicked out uh, or told that, you know, you're, you're not going to get a job here. So they moved at BU, and Boston University at that time was uh, managed by uh, John Silbert, which was a, a very, uh, you know, I think a controversial figure in a sense, but he had a very strong uh, sen- sense of smell for the future. Mm-hmm. And so he, he poured a lot of resources into this department, which was called the Department of Cognitive and Neurosystems. Uh, and that's actually where I went to study. And you asked me, why didn't you go to MIT? Because it didn't have this. That was only at Boston University. It was, wow. a, bu- it was a building uniquely populated by people like-minded, which was we're studying the brain, and then we're doing two things, either explaining its biology uh, and, and behavior, or we're building technology out of it. So that, that was the specialty. And attracted a series of uh, fabulous people, you know, all of my colleagues, which I keep still in touch. But then what happened? Uh, it happened that, Politics came and, uh, uh, you know, without going into the details, the department was dissolved. Hmm. And that was dissolved right before AI revolution exploded. So they didn't know right. that the thing that were dissolving was a, a, a gold mine 
for uh, for science and and Boston University itself. So now they have dissolved it. For us, it's been really good because we have hired as many people as uh, as we could out of this uh, supernova, um, and uh, BU is left with nothing. Uh, so if you're going to take AI today, you shouldn't go to BU. It was not like in 2000 when I came. That was the place to be. Now it's not. And so it's it's uh, interesting how in uh, you know less than 20 years they. Actually, no. The, the department was there since '85, I think. You know, in, in this in the span of a few decades, they went from leading the world to being nowhere to be found, and so it gives you a pause on uh, how easy it is to to destroy something good. Such a missed opportunity for BU. Yeah. Now, your the technology of Neural is also you know backed by patents. So, so, so what advice would you give to other founders around the patent process? It's very you know lengthy and a lot yeah. of lawyers. So, like, so what what advice would you give to to founders on pursuing that? So, we we did this um, because also we being academic uh, by formation, we thought it was a good uh, mental discipline, right? So, the idea of uh, writing down a patent and describing accurately what are the use cases out of that and uh, enabling other people to do it. So it basically makes you uh, rigorously describe the technology and its uses. Obviously it's expensive uh, to do and uh, sometimes it's, it's difficult to enforce. So at this, at this very moment, we actually don't know whether the, all these patents that we have created, which now amounts to a couple of dozen between uh, awarded and pending, will actually yield any revenue for us any multiplier say in case of an exit or not uh that is still to be determined uh if if i have to choose between doing it and not doing it um i would still do it uh because of the mental discipline and the, the potential of a revenue multiplier in case of an exit yeah uh, but you know i'm not at the point where i can tell you this has been our experience because we haven't done that crucial step uh, yet yeah now, what about actually building a business? You talked about, you know, you went through Techstars. So, so what, what, do you, what was like the most challenging part of actually taking, you know, this IP and, and building a, an actual company out of it? Yeah, I mean, the, there were several challenges. The first, and you, you should imagine who we were at the point, right? We were uniquely interested in science. And so the first thing was to, to realize that uh, building technology was not the only thing that we should do. We should also talk to customers and say, well, really? Okay. Really? <laughs> so what? <laughs> and so the, the biggest tension is, uh, especially in an industry that is as new as AI, is uh, the, the, the pull from the market versus the push, right? So understanding the balance between how much should you ask customer what they want, knowing that the customer doesn't actually know exactly what they want because the AI you know, is so new, they don't know what's possible. And, uh, you know, the push, right? So where do you where do you draw the line? And I think there has to be a mix of both. Um, I think today we are much better understanding the you know the pool, and uh, also being very selective where where do we look for pool. And uh, that's probably the most important side. It's not only talking to customer, but understanding which customer is actually more likely to take your technology to a deployment scenario where you know you make revenue in the long term. So that that's that that has been something we have figured out, you know, in the past, to say, you know, twelve to eighteen months, um, which has been essential because before we were able to spot customer that wanted our technology, but they were not always able to bring it to the market, right? And so you end up doing many projects that, uh, um, you know, are good and fun, but they they lead to nowhere. 
And so that's really important with AI. Like you, you need to understand and educate the customer. Sometimes they don't know it. Like if we do X, Y, and Z, where is the deployment? Mm-hmm. Right. So that that's the, still a challenge. Yeah, and so so like, how would you uh, advise a uh, entrepreneur now that you know? How do you identify yeah. the the companies that can actually fall through and are real and are going to generate revenue, hopefully, versus the ones that um, you know are interested and have good intentions, but it's just not, it's going to be a lot of you know wasted time. Well, I, I think it's a matter of uh, you know dialogue with the customer and understanding. Like you know, for instance, if you think Amazon has this methodology of thinking of a project by doing a press release. Mm-hmm. If you're imagining a press release and say, you know, this company releases this product with AI, with AI, like understanding whether they're on board with the vision um, or not. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's illuminating when you have this discussion. There are certain companies that tell you, I want AI that does X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to put it in this, 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 and this model. Mm-hmm. Versus other companies that once you have that discussion, say, well, let me think about where to put it. Mm-hmm. And so that's a red flag. Yeah. Right, uh, because they don't, they haven't thought of it. They might have some um, pot of money to play with from the CEO. Say, here's a million. Do some something fun and show that we're we are relevant and cool. But they have no intention of deploying it. So now, how about raising capital? So going, you know, pitching to VCs that you know, want to be hopefully ahead of the curve and investing in something that is going to. Uh, have a return that is forward-looking versus backward-looking or missing out. Um, like, what what advice would you give to founders that you know have something that you know is not the current market? It might be a little bit you know ahead of the market and raising capital and convincing investors that this is a good you know use of their money. Yeah, I mean, it depends what stage you are in, uh, right? So you know, at a certain point. Uh, it's a very different discussion if you are at the seed stage or a series A versus series B and, you know, and, and, and forward, right? Um, you know, uh, paradoxically, sometimes it's easier to raise money at the seed stage or a series A. Yeah. Because as, as soon as you start to generate revenue mm-hmm. and that revenue is not a billion, uh, VCs are going to say, wait a second, why are you not doing 50 millions? You're just doing 25. Say, mm-hmm. Well, you wanted zero. So if you're if you're doing zero revenue, you have the potential in front of you to be a billion dollar company. Right. But if you're doing ten and twenty five, then the math is like, oh, why are you not doing? Like, you see what I mean? Yeah. So totally. sometimes it's it's uh, it's easier to give uh, wild, uh, uh, open fantasies of the VC a theater where they can uh, grow as big as they want. And yeah. so, in a sense, the Series B may be more challenging of a raise. Um, and so, you know, if you're raising a serious an early stage funding, you know, show some traction, but, you know, really the relevance of the technology is different things converge over time. I think that's a, that, that's a good approach. And obviously, if you're, if you're looking for growth stage, then you have to show traction. Now, Nothing surprising, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, is, traction is good. So uh, what is something about like the future that you believe in that might surprise others? So, um, you know, as we are thinking about AI, Armageddon, and so forth, I, I, I think that um, what, what I will foresee and what will please me as an evolution of our society is that by giving more AI to machines, it will be, we will be freeing up our time more and more, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at the, the way, you know, our time is allotted during the day, 
or in a typical year, a huge chunk of this time is to operate machines, look at screens, operate computers, uh, manage, you know, absorb information, manage this information and chop it off. So with more and more AI, as we have created a huge number of machines for us, but they're all stupid, with more and more AI to make this machine intelligent, I think the quality of our work will improve and we can be more conceptual, for instance. We can uh, use our brain for more conceptual thinking versus, uh, you know, more uh, accounting kind of, uh, you know, uh, thinking. Uh, but also we will have more time available as, a, as a humans. And so the kind of going back to a stage of evolution of humankind where we didn't have to work so much. And, uh, you know, in, in earlier society, we had more time to socialize. You know, also if you look at more primitive society, they work little. You know, they collect some berries, they hunt a little bit, and then they socialize, right? Mm -hmm. And so we are more slaves of our jobs and machines. Mm -hmm. And so maybe a counterintuitive thing to, to think about is that AI might rebalance that uh, sick equation that has become, uh, you know, today's, today's uh, humankind, where, you know, we spend very little time with the family and we do dull jobs. Um, so that, that's my hope, and uh, I, I hope it pans out. I don't know if this is a good example or not, but I just think from a real world case right now, uh, like Gmail and how they're predicting what I'm going to write and I just hit tab. I'm just like, it just gets better and better and better. I'm so, so that is a small step mm -hmm. forward of automating and saving me time on just email. And that, yeah. like that is artificial intelligence too, right? Is that it, safe it to definitely say? Is. It definitely is. So imagine like compute how many seconds that saves you uh, over a year and now spread it across all your activities, yep. right? So for instance, if you don't have, and not everybody likes to drive. I like to drive because I'm Italian, you know, I like to sometimes, well, if there is police listening, I shouldn't say what I do, but anyway. <laughs> uh, I like to drive, uh, you know, with, uh, with passion. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, but there are certain people who don't necessarily need to drive. And right. so if they're not driving that hour, maybe people commute for two hours per day. They can use those two hours, I don't know, to exercise, right. uh, write a poem, I, I don't know, invent something, right? And so how, what's the value of that? Well, 40,000 hours in a life are used for driving. So wow. what, can, what can you do in 40,000 hours? And, and on and on and on. So these are some uh, non-Muskian application of AI. Is that the word, Muskian? I just, I just, <laughs> just made that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You coined that phrase. Yes. How far off do you think is like the you know true autonomous driving world? Where I mean, it's starting to you know see more and more progress. But when do you think that's going to be a very real thing? Um, that is constrained by our expectation as a as sort of a misled expectation. So, um, and that we find very often with with some customers uh, as well outside of the self driving cars. So that sometimes the expectation of a machine is that it has to be a hundred percent perfect, right? And so when we look at the human doing the same task, it's like 80% or 85. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe it starts to drink vodka, it gets to 20, right? right? So the expectation of, a, of a AI being perfect is the enemy, right? I think there is also the word perfection is the enemy of, uh, what's to say, of uh, doable or feasible, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you just need to have good enough AI to be very useful. Right. So right. certain deployments that we have done, they're nowhere near 100%. But what they do is they reduce the amount of data that the human has to look from, you know, a thousand images to five, right? 
and uh, and with a very high probability that those five images are relevant. Mm-hmm. And so I just saved you 995 images to look at by an AI that is say 70% correct. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, uh, and so for self-driving cars, it's pretty much the the expectation of AI. I don't foresee that to be uh, something uh, that happens soon, and that's actually why we moved out of uh, uh, the, the the space very early. We started working this in 2011 mm-hmm. with some uh, Japanese uh, companies, and then with some American companies, and with some European companies. Mm-hmm. And we 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 kind of said, uh-uh, this is never going to happen within our lifetime. We're not going to make any money. And they're and they're never going to want it, yeah, because uh, they want perfection. So, pass. Well, you, you talked about your love for driving. Like, what else do you like to do outside of of you know building Norala? I have four kids. Mm, okay, so you're busy. <laughs> yeah, does, does it help? So you know, I, um, you know, I, I have four children: eight, six, uh, two years old, and uh, six months. Oh wow! <laughs> so, so I spend uh, I spend a lot of time with them. The other thing that I do is uh, I travel uh, a lot for work. I was just in Europe. Uh, I have family in Italy, so whenever I can, I jump uh, on a plane and I do business stuff, and then I visit uh, I visit my family. Uh, sometimes I go with uh, my colleagues to drive go karts, you know. And uh-huh. uh, the, the rest of the time I read. I am uh, just an insatiable reader. Mm-hmm. I read all sorts of stuff. Try try to read not about AI, so just. Uh, you know, otherwise I get suicidal AI, AI all day long. Yeah, too much. Even, too much. even my wife is a, you know, she's a co-founder. Uh, just imagine, you know, that that the, the d- dinner box. room, t- <laughs> the, the dining room, <laughs> the, yeah. the conversation at the dining room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, our kids get they get uh, they get in, enough AI, I think. So right. makes sense. Yeah. Well. Thanks so much, Max, for taking us through this, uh, you know, this really interesting conversation about AI and kind of the history and where it's going. And of course, all the amazing things that you guys are building at Norala. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.